This is an ABC podcast. TikTok on RN, it's time for the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. How do you experience time? Well, if you're like most people, you experience it something like a river. It has a flow and a linear progression with the future in front of you and the past behind you. But have you ever considered that actually the future is behind you and you're walking backwards into it with your eyes fixed on the past? Or have you considered that maybe time doesn't flow at all? Well, plenty of philosophers have. The idea that time passes is just that. It's an idea. And it doesn't necessarily describe what's actually happening. There are plenty of alternative models for time. There's presentism, there's eternalism, there's the growing block theory. It's all very interesting stuff. And for those of us who are perhaps experiencing a sense of time slowing to a crawl as the novelty of lockdown starts to wear off, some alternative models of time might come in handy over the next few months. Well, I'm talking about all of this with Christy Miller. She's Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Sydney, and she's also Joint Director of the University's Centre for Time. Presentism is the view that only one moment exists, and that's the present. And there are no past times and there are no future times. But then, of course, what exists changes. So... It used to be the case that dinosaurs existed, but now they don't. It's now the case that you and I exist, but uh, unfortunately at some later time we won't exist. Uh, And so the flow of time is really just a change in which things there are. But it's always the case that only present things exist, uh, and that's why the present is special. Whereas other models kind of model that specialness uh, quite differently. So, for instance, um, on what's known as the growing block view, The universe is constantly growing along the temporal dimension. So the first time that came into existence, whenever that was, let's suppose it was the Big Bang, it came into existence uh, and then it stayed in existence thereafter. But then new times came into existence after that. And new times gradually kind of accrete along the temporal dimension so that the whole of reality grows. So back when the dinosaurs were around, um, everything up to the dinosaurs existed. Um, But you and I didn't exist. We hadn't yet happened. Uh, Gradually time moved on and we came into existence. And uh, will remain in existence forever uh, after time has continued to pass. Um, And basically the flow of time is modelled by the fact that new stuff is coming to be all the time. So it's the expanding universe as an expanding space-time universe. Right, yeah. So it's not just expanding kind of spatially. It's not just that more, more spatial stuff is getting added. It's that new times are getting added. And then what makes the present special on that model is that uh, it's the time that sits at the very end of the growing block. Um, After the present, there's no more stuff because the future hasn't happened yet. But earlier than the present, there's lots of stuff, which is all the past stuff. Okay. And tell me about eternalism because that's one that I want to come back to a little later in the conversation. Yeah, so eternalism is the view that uh, past, present and future all exist and there's there's no special location, which is the present. It's a little bit like the growing block, except um, nothing grows. It's that um, everything is uh, eternally there, as it were, and there's no different. There's no special present moment. Um, Nothing in the block actually changes, or at least put it this way, the block itself doesn't change. It's not growing or shrinking or moving around in any way. Um, So if you were to look at the block from the outside, it's not like you could see any moment and say, oh, I see that moment there is really the present moment. Rather, it's more that the present moment is just going to be 
the location at which you happen to be existing, just like when you say that you are here, you don't mean that there's like some special metaphysical property of here-ness, which is where you happen to be. Um, you just mean that you are at the location where you are at. So uh, when you say you are here, you are in Brisbane. Uh, and when I say I'm here, I mean Bundanoon. And there's nothing special about Bundanoon and special about Brisbane. Um, they just happen to be the places where you are. And so eternalists say something much the same about time. So they say, look, there's no sense in which time flows. There's no present moment which moves around. It's just that different people in the block are located uh, at different locations and, of course, where you're located uh, is going to depend on uh, what's going to determine what sorts of um, experiences you have and what you see. So if we were located many thousands of years ago, we'd be seeing dinosaurs, but, in fact, we're seeing, um, you know, dogs and cats instead. But there's nothing special about where we are. If we were located back where the dinosaurs uh, are, in fact, located, um, that location would be the present for us. Yeah, I guess that if you're strongly invested in, um, you know, agitating for social change or some notion of progress, progress, it seems to me to be a word that has a sort of temporal flow coded into it. So some of these models, you might say, provide a recipe for a certain kind of political quiescence, you know, if if, eternalism, for example, I mean, if if I'm getting it right, it's this model which says that everything that is going to happen is already in some sense set. So it's hard to reconcile that with a an idea of time that, that makes it possible for us to to make the world better, if you like, to, to achieve progress in that familiar sense of the word. Yeah, so I certainly think that a lot of people feel like that the first time that they meet that view. And I think that's a that's a natural kind of response to have because it's very natural to think something like, well, look, if the future is kind of already out there in space-time, and it is a certain way, as you know, a certain number of people have in the future died of COVID-19. You might think, well, look, either in the future you and I are out there alive and kicking and happy um, or we're not. And so you might think, well, there's very little point to us, you know, staying home and putting on our masks and so forth, at least self- very little selfish point, you might think, um, because it's already fixed and determined out there what happens to us. And I, I see the intuition there and I guess... If that was how you saw things, then I think this idea of kind of agitating for social change would seem odd. It would seem like what would be the point doing that because whatever will happen will happen. I'm hopeful that that's not quite the picture of reality that something like eternalism generates, or at least it's it's not, I think it's not intended to generate that, although I do understand that some people feel like that upon meeting the model. Rather, so it's, it's not supposed to be that, the various kind of future states are out there completely irrespective of what you and I do now. So obviously eternalists are going to want to say that there's a story about why the world is the way it is at this time and that story is going to appeal to um, causal processes and to things that happened at earlier times. So, you know, why does the virus have the particular characteristics it has in terms of its spread across the planet at this time? Well, we can trace it back and we're going to be able to tell some causal story about the various actions that people took at various earlier times where people travelled to and so forth. And that's going to explain why currently certain people are infected with the virus. And there's going to be the same kind of story that you can tell moving forward. So whatever it turns out that those future states of the world are out there in space-time, they're going to be the causal progeny, if you like, of the things that we do now. You know, the Australian numbers of people being infected with the virus 
had significantly decreased per day and clearly that's the causal result of people generally staying at home and engaging in social distancing. And whatever the future states turn out to be, um, it's while it's true that in some sense they are out there in space-time uh, according to eternalism, what those states are is the result of what we do now. And if we do different things now, then the future will look different. And it seems to me that that's exactly what you kind of want if you're interested in progress or in social change or in social justice. Um, what you should really care about is not kind of which states already, which states are out there in the future. We should care not that they are out there, but you should care which states are out there. And which states are out there is kind of a direct consequence of the things that you do now. So, you know, if you want the future states to be ones with less pollution and more biodiversity and uh, less environmental degradation and a uh, higher minimum wage and so on and so forth, um, then you have to do things now to make that the case because whatever those future states are going to look like, it's going to be the result of exactly the things that you do now. But we have on one hand the philosophical models and then on the other hand we have the science. We have quantum physics and Einstein's general and special theories of relativity. These are realms in which time is, is very important and they've, they've established certain things about how time works. But, of course, it's all very complex stuff. I mean, is this something that you need to be across? If you want to be a philosopher of time, you need to be very closely acquainted with this science. Is, is, it, is it definitive in some way? Yes, I think that if you want to come up with a picture, if you want to understand time, then you definitely need to be familiar with the science. And I think that there's a kind of important interplay between metaphysics on the one hand and science on the other. So I think the scientific endeavour and the philosophical endeavour um, should be viewed as uh, friends that are kind of moving hand in hand and that they both provide interesting and important um parts of the puzzle and that you, while you, in some sense you can do one without the other, the picture that you end up with is going to be radically incomplete. I mean, there's lots of different questions that you can ask in the philosophy of time. And one of the, obviously one pertinent question is something about like, what is time like around here? What, what is actual time like? And I think it's almost impossible to answer that question without some kind of engagement with science. Um, and I think it would be kind of madness to think that you could just put the physics aside and just do philosophy kind of all by yourself. But equally, I think that it's a mistake to think that philosophy can't bring anything to the party here, that we should give this job to the physicists and then we should, the rest of us can kind of go home and just wait for them to kind of unveil their great picture. Because I think it's usually the case that uh, in order to get a picture of what reality is like out of physics, which is often just a lot of maths, you need to put a bunch of philosophical assumptions in all the way along through the process. It's very rare that you can kind of read off a picture of reality from physics without having put in any philosophical assumptions. And you can see that when you when you look at um, Einstein's theory of special relativity, for instance, um, which is a very elegant theory, but one of the things that he, he writes in as part of the theory in order to get out the picture of reality at the end is this idea that because you couldn't empirically detect uh, which frame of reference is the one frame of reference, um, that there is no such frame. And that, uh, so I don't want to suggest that that's not a plausible assumption, but it's worth noting that it, it's uh, that doesn't come out of the physics. That's something that he's added to the picture as a kind of uh, philosophical or uh, metaphysical hypothesis about how things are. And that's part of what gets you to the picture that he ends up with. And I think it's often the case that 
theories in physics put in various kind of philosophical assumptions along the way. And it's important to recognise that and to test those assumptions and to, to realise that they're there and also to interrogate them and try and figure out whether they are reasonable assumptions to make. So that's, what I think, one important role of philosophy. And then another role is just trying to make sense of what the physics actually tells you about the picture of the world. So often what you get out of physics at the end is a kind of uninterpreted um, bunch of maths and then somebody has to engage in the kind of interpretive project of working out well, what if we were going to paint a picture of reality, what picture would that paint? And physicists do some of that work, but I think uh, it's also important for philosophers to kind of get on board there because there's all sorts of ways that you can interpret uh, a bunch of maths into a kind of picture of reality. I mean, just think about quantum mechanics. Basically, everyone agrees about the empirical predictions and the empirical evidence, and they agree about the maths largely, and yet you get this kind of radically different pictures about what reality really looks like from kind of many worlds pictures at one end to all sorts of other pictures at the other end. And really what's going on here is philosophy, right? The, everyone agrees about the maths, but then the, the picture of the world that emerges um, is very different. And what's happening here is just that physicists and philosophers are generating different pictures on the basis of that, of that maths. And so I think clearly that's a, an important role that philosophers are playing. Sometimes physicists are doing it, um, but sometimes philosophers are doing it. And that's why you really need some kind of combination of both, because otherwise you don't really end up with um, a picture of reality, you just end up with um, kind of uninterpreted bunch of theory. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. You're with me, David Rutledge, and my guest, Christy Miller from the University of Sydney. This week, we're deep within the swirling vortex of time. I wanted to ask you about the role of language because I, I come from a continental philosophy background and I'm, for better or worse, I'm, I'm sort of steeped in this idea that language is constitutive of pretty much everything that we do and everything that we are. Do you think that our sense of time passing is partly determined by the fact that we express our concepts and our account of the world in, in verb tenses, right, past, present and future? Or, or if we don't, if we're speaking a language that doesn't have those verb tenses, we still have plenty of other semantic markers in the language that point to past, present and future. What do you think about the role of language in this? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question and I'm not sure what the right answer is. I, I definitely think that all of what you just said plays an important role for sure and I certainly think that the fact that we have all those kind of semantic markers is going to be part of the explanation for the fact that we use certain sorts of metaphors that lead us to uh, often describe time in a kind of flowy way. Um, it's because it's just very it's a very natural thing to do when you have the kinds of linguistic constructions that we in fact have. So I think at, at a minimum you can say that that's going to be true. Um, and we certainly find that there's quite a lot of kind of cross-cultural variation in terms of um, how people describe their kind of temporal experiences, and that that variation is partly linked to language. It's not all it's not all language based, but it's certainly um, playing some kind of role there. So you know, if you ask somebody to represent the kind of temporal dimension, um, exactly how they do that on a piece of paper is quite closely linked to how they write and 
the sort of representation of um, of language on paper. So English speakers will tend to write, will tend to make a line from left to right, and they'll tend to say that the past is on the left and the future is on the right. But if you if you come from a culture that writes from top to bottom, you'll do the temporal axis. Uh, and you'll draw, you know, from the top to the bottom and you'll say that the past is at the top and the future's at the bottom. But you also find a lot of cross-cultural variation that doesn't seem to be due to language itself. So, so I imagine if I were to ask you to point sort of metaphorically to point towards the past and point towards the future, um, most people in a, in a kind of Western culture will point forwards from where they're facing as the future. So you're kind of facing the future and they'll point behind them to point to the past. Um, so it's sort of like your back is to the past and your your front is to the future, uh, and that's a that's a fairly natural way of kind of gesturing. Um, but there are tribes that do the the reverse of that. Um, there are tribes that will gesture the other way around. So they'll say that the future is um, behind them and the past is in front of them. And so there's there's various kind of cross cultural variation in all these sorts of things. What I think is a really interesting question, which you're pushing on, is kind of how deep is that is that difference? My guess, if I like, if I had to guess right now, would be that they don't run super deep, in the sense that there's likely to be a kind of deep, uniform concept of and phenomenology of the past, present, and future, which captures something that's in common across all of our experiences, which is that sense of fixedness of the past and openness of the future and a sense in which we are kind of anticipating future events in a way that we're not um, anymore anticipating past events. And I think that's likely to be something that all people share, but then how they exactly how they describe those experiences I expect will be quite different depending on their kind of social context. I want to ask you, Christy, as a philosopher of time, as somebody who's been thinking and writing and working on this for quite some time, how do you experience time yourself personally? I'm wondering if if we think long and hard enough about the alternative models to the flow of time model, is it possible to actually escape that perception of time passing and, and have you escaped it? I think my my phenomenology now is just the same as it's always been and that in a way I feel like I can kind of put on the hat of these various different models and imagine that any of them is true so maybe that means I don't have a really strong sense of time flowing in, in any kind of way. Or maybe it's just that I've developed some sense by looking at the different models for long enough that the way things seem to me could be captured by any of them. I'm genuinely not sure. But um, I, I think what would be really interesting would be research that tries to sort of target different people's phenomenology and tries to work out whether whether and to what extent um, kind of temporal phenomenology varies across people versus it just being the case that people tend to describe it in different ways. Yeah, that makes me wonder about people who meditate a lot and, and who are able to attain that state of, of presentness, of being in the now, uh, because that's one that seems to me to be, you know, it's, it's a familiar alternative to many of us. Um, and it's one that, you know, for those of us who do meditate, we do get a sense of that. But how that would affect one's perception of time just as the days go by, uh, yeah, it's interesting to consider. Yes, I mean, there's there's definitely some really interesting research actually on uh, how people kind of describe that temporal phenomenology while they're in the meditative state. And there's also interesting research um, coming out of, you know, sort of various drug-induced 
um, states where often people report, of course, quite different temporal phenomenology under the influence of various different drugs. And there's a, I saw some research recently, there's a kind of big table which has all of these different drugs down one side and then the kind of ways people have described the temporal phenomenology associated with those drugs. And um, there's studies both on that and on meditation. So that's actually something I'm really interested in is trying to figure out what's going on in those cases. So, so obviously I don't think that people are kind of, that time itself is any different for people who are meditating or people who are um, under the influence of drugs. But clearly it does create a very different kind of um, experience and it would be really nice to get a handle on sort of what are those experiences like and what, if anything, can they tell us about the way we ordinarily kind of experience the temporal dimension and so I think there's there's definitely really interesting avenues um, of research to be had there. It's sort of it's actually on my little I have a little sticky label of possible future projects to follow up on, and that's one of the things on my little sticky labels. Right. Well, you're certainly suggesting an interesting range of activities to try during um, COVID nineteen <laughs> lockdown. Which, of course, I'm not recommending to anyone. But I want to talk about lockdown because, I mean, right now, for many of us, certainly for me, um, each day is a lot more similar to the day before than it was previously. Um, And this is sort of affecting my perception of time. I'm finding it hard to remember what day it is. Things that happened pre-lockdown now seem like a lifetime ago, even though it's been two, three weeks. How is it for you? How are you experiencing time at the moment? My experiences aren't that different, but... uh I do think that what you just said then is really interesting and that's that's another thing that's on my sticky labels. There's quite a bit of interesting research on the different kind of perceptions of time as people age but also uh, different perceptions of time associated with people with various kind of illnesses connected to dementia and, and things of that kind. And some of that research certainly suggests that the way that you that you kind of experience time and in particular how fast it seems to you that time passes during any kind of period varies a lot depending on a whole range of factors and and some of the stuff that's coming out of the the dementia research which kind of allows you to target very particular bits of the brain are suggestive of one of the things being exactly what you just said there which is sort of how many different things have happened in an interval can have a big effect on people's experience of how fast it that interval went and so what you're saying here is is definitely something that people have actually found in empirical research, which is that where there is much more monotony, it seems as though um, an interval that is exactly the same time as some other interval just seems to pass much more slowly. I guess one thing that a lot of people are going to be doing is um, consuming a lot more media, you know, TV, movies, uh, reading. And there's a lot of time travel stories in popular culture, science fiction novels, plenty of, of movies and TV series. Do you have any particular ones that you like or, or ones that seem to get it right in some sense? Yeah, you're right. There's such a lot of time travel and there was a real explosion of time travel series on TV in the last couple of years too. So, you know, I downloaded one and the next thing you know, someone would be emailing me to say there was another one. I was like, man, I'm only partway through this one. Um, it, it must be that it really captures something in the public imagination. I'm not, I'm not completely sure what it is, but people do seem to really love a good time travel film. So I guess my favourite on the getting it right side of things is probably something like 12 Monkeys. And it hardly seems any time ago that that was a, a relatively recent release, but I looked back recently and I was like, wow, that's really quite an old film now. 
Um, but it's always one that I recommend to my students who take my time travel course because um, it's very nicely done and it gives you a, a really nice consistent kind of time travel story where nobody's changing the past. So many, many kind of um, time travel movies and ones in which, you know, we send you back in time and you make things other than we in fact know they were. So, you know, you go back and you change your your personal history or, you know, you kill Hitler or you prevent COVID-19 from spreading or something. And these are all very entertaining because, I mean, they're entertaining because they get to show you pictures of how things would have gone if the past had been different. And, of course, that's a fascinating thing to want to know. But um, most people in philosophy think that it's not possible to change the past because, you know, the past just is the way the past was. And so if you want time travel films that are kind of consistent in that sense, then something like 12 Monkeys is very nicely done because, you know, there's no changing of the past. There's just going back and... Um, making the past the way that it in fact was, which is uh, very cool. I get what you mean about the logical inconsistency of these fantasies of going back and killing Hitler and that kind of thing. And it makes me think of the Terminator series. Uh, I think it was the second movie, you know, where the, um, not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the other guy, the the evil uh, cyborg comes back from the future to kill the child who is going to grow up to lead the resistance against the robot overlords or whatever. And are you saying that, in, in a situation like that, that even though this kid is is running for most of the film, he's running from this evil cyborg, that really he doesn't need to worry because in the future he exists as the leader of the resistance and there is nothing that the evil cyborg can do about that. So even if the evil cyborg got his hands on the kid, there would be something that happened to make it that he just wouldn't be able to kill him. Is that what we're sort of looking at here? Yes, although, of course, that's not true in the Terminator films. So I take it in the Terminator films, they, they are representing uh, a reality in which you can change the past. So in that film, that kid should run, right? Because clearly in that film, uh, if he doesn't run, the Terminator is in fact going to kill him. And and all the Terminator films are films in which there is, in fact, past changing and future changing too. So some guy goes back to the past and he changes the past, which thereby percolates through and changes the future in various ways, um, so that in some cases um, there's no future that he there that he came from. So philosophers are going to think that that's a, a kind of an inconsistent story unless you wheel out lots of very complicated metaphysical apparatuses. So one thing that philosophers have fun doing is taking films like that and trying to figure out what kind of wacky model would you need to make sense of that. And some of them you need a lot of, of wackiness. But, yes, Philosophers of time are mostly going to think that, look, if the Terminator films were were real, like if they were set in our universe as we actually think it works, then um, sure, the Terminators can send a Terminator back in time. I think um, most philosophers of time think that time travel is at least in principle possible. But no, um, if that kid already grew up to become leader of the resistance and that's what motivated the Terminators to send a Terminator back, then... Uh, no Terminator who comes back is going to succeed in killing the kid because it can't both be that the kid grew up to become leader of the resistance and also true that the Terminator killed the kid. Well, yes, the Terminator is going to fail for some reason or other. Of course, the Terminator could fail because the kid runs, but you're right. The, the kid could well think to himself, look, since we know I grow up, I'm just not going to run. Like, just try and get me, Sonny Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a perfectly reasonable thing to think. Okay, well, look, having just sucked all the suspense out of the Terminator movies, I, I think we can probably leave it there. Um, Christy Miller, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Well, thank you for having me. 
Christy Miller, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Sydney and Joint Director of the Centre for Time. More info on the website. Just look for the Philosopher's Zone on the ABC Listen app or the RN homepage. And if you have an excess of time on your hands right now, then become a subscriber to the Philosopher's Zone podcast. I think we're all consuming a lot of media at the moment, so get that one on the list if you haven't already. We have a huge back catalogue of past programs. Thanks for your company. I'm David Rutledge. You can tweet me at David P Zone. Hope to see you next week. Bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.